Welcome to our Clothed with the Sun daily podcast, a daily reading of the gospel and a brief meditation. I am James Thomas. Today is Friday, April 21st, 2023. It's the Friday of the second week of Easter. Our gospel reading today is taken from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish feast of Passover was near. When Jesus raised his eyes and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, Where can we buy enough food for them to eat? He said this to test him, because he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred days' wages worth of food would not be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what good are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people recline. Now there was a great deal of grass in that place, so the men reclined about five thousand in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were reclining, and also as much of the fish as they wanted. When they had had their fill, he said to his disciples, Gather the fragments left over, so that nothing will be wasted. So they collected them, and filled twelve wicker baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that had been more than they could eat. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is truly the prophet, the one who is to come into the world. Since Jesus knew that they were going to come and carry him off to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain alone. So we have, as we have begun this Easter season, we've been looking at John chapter 3, Jesus' talk with Nicodemus and a particular focus on baptism and the Holy Spirit. And now we're getting into John chapter 6, which is generally speaking known as the bread of life discourse. It begins with the miracle of the loaves and the fish. See, God knows what he's doing. Imagine that. So he has it all planned out. The way the stories unfold, the way one thing will lead to another, one image refers to another. The whole Bible is about eating. Honestly, it's about eating. At the beginning, we see Adam and Eve created in the garden, and God tells them what they can and can't eat. And then there's good food and there's bad food. They, Of course, they eat the bad food, and it brings condemnation upon the human race. It brings sin into the world. And then we have a history of sacrifices and sacrificial meals which I wanted to talk about a little bit today and the whole concept of communion. And then we have Jesus coming. And I mean, there's just so many images of eating in the gospels. Jesus is placed in a manger. Manja, if you're Italian. Manger, it it refers to eating. It's the food trough for the animals, for the sheep. The sheep eat out of a manger. Wow. (laughs) Right there in the events of history, God is trying to tell us something. Jesus has come to feed us with his very self. 
we have the image of the good shepherd. The good shepherd feeds the sheep. This is an image in the Old and New Testament. And then there's the loaves and the fish. There is this concept that Jesus talks about a lot, divine providence, that he will give us what we need. And very often, the the topic of food is brought up. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet. And there's multiple parables talking about a wedding banquet. It's the wedding and it's the banquet. It's referring to the wedding banquet of the lamb, the bride and groom coming together, God and his people. And it's the banquet. It's them eating. It's them sharing time at a table together like families do. And Jesus gives us the food of eternal life. And then the book of Revelation is all about, once again, the wedding banquet of the Lamb. So there's so many different things. And once again, we go back to Genesis. We see the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were not allowed to eat. There's a lot of different theories about that. Was it something truly evil? Was it something maybe good that God just was holding back from them? Maybe God wanted to feed them himself with that fruit. Maybe it wasn't time for them yet. Certainly there's a test involved and they failed the test. But also in that garden, there was the tree of life. We learn about it at the beginning, but it's not the fun, interesting part of the story. So we kind of gloss over it. Then at the end, it says God puts angels with fiery swords to guard the tree of life, lest they eat of it and live forever. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, I mentioned this before during Holy Week, he says, put away your sword. Now, in some of the passages, because remember, there's four Gospels, this is referring to Peter cutting off the servant's ear, Malchus. And Jesus goes on to say, those who live by the sword die by the sword. But there's another version of the story where Peter doesn't do that, and Jesus still says, put away your sword. And the fathers of the church interpret that passage as Jesus speaking to the angels with the fiery swords that were sent to guard the tree of life, to keep us from eating of it and living forever in a sinful state. Well, we no longer need angels with fiery swords to guard the tree of life because Jesus has paid the price for our sins. And the tree of life now is not that same tree that was in the Garden of Eden, but it is the cross. Jesus dies on the cross and this now becomes the tree of life. It's the place where life is once again won for us. The price of our sins is, t- is uh, taken from Jesus, his very blood. Jesus lays it down freely, of course. And there is a fruit of this tree of life, and that is the Eucharist. This is my body. This is my blood, Jesus says. And when he says this at the Last Supper, he's not simply saying, Uh, This is what I'm giving you right now. He's referring to the next day. He says, which will be shed for you. This is my body, which will be given up for you. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me, the word barakah, which means taking an event of the past and making it present. So he's giving them a new Passover. I don't want to jump ahead here because you have to understand the old Passover before you can understand the new And of course, these are sermons. These aren't classes or long theological discourses. So I'm just going to really touch on some of these topics. But first of all, just to give you my little agenda here, whenever I cover John 6, it always takes five days to read the gospel, sometimes more. 
So that's what we're doing here in the church. It, it won't be read on Sunday because Sunday's gospels have more to do with the resurrection at this point and the, uh, you know, just the Easter readings. But the next five weekdays, the next five days that are not Sundays, we have uh, Friday, Saturday, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're going to be reading John 6. So we're going to be reading the Bread of Life Discourse. Of course, in the middle of this is Jesus walking on the water. There's so much exciting stuff happening in these stories. Oh, my goodness. John 6 is a great story. And usually when I do this, when I read John 6 and we take it piece by piece, I like to give a little history of the Eucharist and maybe even a little theology and a little bit on just what the Mass is and how to pray the Mass and how to receive communion. A very brief history of the Mass is what I'm offering here at the moment. I think I'll do some podcasts in the future where I just talk at length about the Mass and other religious topics. But for now, as I was already saying, there are so many things connected to each other in the Bible. Jesus multiplies loaves here in this miracle story so that then it leads to a conversation about Jesus feeding the people. They start talking about Moses giving manna in the desert, once again, eating food from heaven, bread from heaven. And then Jesus says, I give you the true manna. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Amen, amen, I say to you, which means, yeah, you better take this seriously. So it's all connected, and it goes back to the Old Testament. Not just in so far as there is a meal, but there is a liturgy in the Old Testament that's being presented to us that culminates now in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It's all leading to the Mass, and the Mass being the making present of the Paschal Mystery, Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. So we begin with Genesis there is the tree, the fruit. But even before that, there is this liturgical creation that takes place. A liturgy is a, it's God and the people working together. God and the people, well, it's worship. Worship happens in liturgies. Liturgies are all about worship. God's creation worships him especially we are supposed to worship him for the beauty of his creation. And God brings order out of chaos and God gives us a certain, the, the, the creation story itself in Genesis chapter one follows a pattern. It follows liturgical rubrics in a sense. So the very first liturgy is simply God creating the world and the pattern by which he does that, the rhythm of those beautiful readings God is already setting up that he has made us for himself, as St. Augustine says, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Then on the seventh day, he rests. Why does he rest? Well, in the original story, he's resting from his labors, but this goes on to be the Sabbath. It's the day for everyone to rest, to commune with God. Of course, there's a heavy emphasis on family there as well, but we are God's family. Each one of our individual families is a building block, a brick, we can say, in the larger building, which ultimately is going to be the church. Each family, Pope John Paul used to say, is a domestic church. 
So God creates the world in an orderly fashion. God creates the family. Let us make them in our image. Male and female, he made them. And then he says, be fertile and multiply. So he's creating all sorts of liturgical action. He creates the Sabbath so that there is worship of him. Of course, they sin. And so now we need opportunities to make up for our sins. And we see in the story of Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4, that they are offering sacrifices. So this is the human race is already in in the work. It's going to, this is our ultimate task as human beings. Nothing means more than judgment day. Judgment day is the ultimate moment that we need to prepare for more than anything else. Sorry for a little noise in the background. That's my printer just suddenly turning on by itself. Um, Yes, so we're preparing for Judgment Day. And so the people knew that. They're going to be judged for their sins, and so they made sacrifice for their sins. So right there, Cain and Abel are making sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice is accepted. Cain's is rejected. Cain gets jealous, and he slays his brother Abel which is kind of against the whole purpose of sacrifice. And, you know, he's already, he's already rejected. And I mean, you can guess from the story, maybe he's being rejected because of his evil heart. There's already evil in that heart. And then he makes it worse by killing his brother. And already there's a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do for us, shedding his blood. The blood screams out to God. There are so many parallels, endless parables, parallels, I mean, between the Old and New Testament. So we see this theme, just to shorten it as much as I can, I've already mentioned so many things, but this theme of offering sacrifice. And that's going to be coupled with doing penance. And we see this over and over again. We're going to eventually come to Moses and the Passover supper. Now, one thing that's when we study the Passover supper, I mean, the Passover supper is going to be in a way a template for the Eucharist. It's also a foreshadowing of the crucifixion, plain and simple. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the Israelites protects them from the evil one. Notice they cook the lamb a certain way. They offer half of it to God while they eat the other part. So there is a sacrifice, an atonement for sin, a shedding of blood which protects them from evil, and there is communion. And the whole concept here in these liturgies, in these sacrifices, is it it leads to communion with God. Making sacrifice to God happens at the same time as communing with God. We sit at the table with God. We share our meal with God. We sacrifice part of it, meaning we're giving it to God. Then we eat part of it because we wish to be part of God's family. We are communing with God. All these things go together. It's such a beautiful thing. And once again, I'm just stating it all very briefly. We see different people in the Old Testament doing penance. I think in particular the story of King David when he sinned with Bathsheba and then the baby died before Solomon was conceived. And David is doing penance. We see the people of Nineveh at the warning of Jonah doing penance and so many other examples. Now in the prophets, and we're getting closer and closer to the time of Jesus, we're going to see that the prophets say, you know, your sacrifices, they're very elaborate. 
And, and isn't that wonderful, you know, that, that you would do elaborate sacrifices. It, it's a good thing in and of itself, but there's so many things that are wrong with these sacrifices. See, this is why we need Jesus to come. We need the one definitive sacrifice. On the one hand, they're not turning away from their sins. They're not sorry. On the other hand, it's a big show. They pay all this money for these big elaborate sacrifices. And he says, while paying money for all these great big things that put you on display, you're neglecting the poor people on your way into the temple. You're neglecting the poor. You're not doing good. You're not turning away from your sins. And then there's an even bigger issue, and that is the blood of an animal cannot pay the price for your sins. I mean, if we do it with a good heart and if we've done appropriate penance, God does judge the heart. God knows our hearts. And so it's a beginning of the forgiveness of sins. It's a foreshadowing. It's a beginning. It's a preparation for what's eventually going to come. And that is that God's going to send his son to be the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world. All this is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. All of it is described in one way or another. The people in New Testament times initially are not getting it. They still want the Messiah to just come in and conquer Rome. End of story. They see a triumphant Messiah, which, yes, Jesus is going to be extremely triumphant, more than any other king in history. But first, he has to sacrifice himself to take away our sins. He has to sacrifice himself for us. So when Jesus gives us his body on the cross, I mean, that's the ultimate prayer. It's the ultimate sacrifice. We don't need any more sacrifices. Jesus offered himself to the Father, and that is literally what saves us. We are the ones that deserve the punishment, but Jesus takes it on himself. God is all just and all merciful. In his justice, he says, you deserve death, you deserve hell. We don't want God to let go of justice. We need justice. You look at the justice system and just the the fact that we have police officers and judges and yeah, there might be some corruption here and there, but still we need that justice system. Otherwise we would be lost And the same way with the divine system of justice in his justice. He says, you deserve death. You deserve hell, but then there's his mercy and his mercy outdoes his justice in his mercy. He says, I'm going to do it for you. Or we could have the father saying, I'm going to send my son to do it for you, to die in your place. So Jesus suffers a horrible death. Jesus descends into hell. Jesus descends among the dead, but death cannot hold him down. So Jesus offers the ultimate sacrifice and then comes back from the dead, conquers sin and conquers death, and then opens the gates of heaven for us. And the last supper is so crucial In that Jesus says, I mean, as I was saying earlier, you know, this is my body, which will be given for you. This is my blood, which will be shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he gives us a perpetual memorial, and that is the beginning officially of the mass. In that every time we have mass, we can tap into the Paschal mystery, what Jesus did for our salvation. It becomes present in our midst. All those other things were types and foreshadowings. But now we have the true definitive sacrifice. If we didn't have the mass, 
Well, then we would just be looking back in time saying, well, remember that thing Jesus did 2,000 years ago? Well, that's great. We celebrate that. And then there's sort of like this continuation of what was happening in Old Testament times. Well, I'm going to do my best. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to strive to confess my sins and do penance and, and do what I can, contribute to the church, etc. But the reality is the Mass makes it present day after day after day for us. It makes it present. It's like if we had gone back in time, but the t- it comes to us. Jesus is a divine person. So his sacrifice and the fruits of his sacrifice apply to every time and place. And so the Mass brings it right there into our midst. And the Eucharist, the fruit of the Mass, the fruit of the Tree of Life, that being present for us, just to be able to go and pray in a church, especially when there's Eucharistic adoration, it's the fruits of the Mass that are still there for us. Jesus on the cross being presented to us. The whole of Jesus, all that Jesus is, but especially his sacrifice. It continues to be there for us to worship, for us to connect with. So the Mass connects us to the sacrifice. By receiving Jesus in the Eucharist, we are receiving the sacrifice and the fruit of the sacrifice, and that's our connection through Jesus to the Father. That happens because of the Eucharist. The early disciples knew this. Even if it's not all spelled out in Scripture, yet it is to such a large degree. We have John 6, we have the Last Supper. Never mind all the foreshadowing that that goes into it. But then we have St. Paul talking about it and how we shouldn't eat and drink unworthily. And his whole theology of communion, communio, which Vatican II once again reemphasized. We are what we eat. And Jesus makes us into his body, and we all become members of the body. We all become important parts of, of the church, the body of Christ, because of Holy Communion, because of communing with God. So then in the early church, while the Bible is still being written and codified, we're in those first couple centuries, we're going to have all these early accounts of the Mass, of what it means that the apostles and then their uh, dis, you know, spiritual descendants would have the breaking of the bread. So the next sermon that I give, which will be tomorrow, I'll talk a little bit about the history of the Mass. I am not an expert, and I would like to be. I'm learning more and more as I go. I can certainly say enough for a sermon or two or for a talk, but there's still so much more to learn. But this is, I hope just today to give you the brief biblical background And I'll just finish with this note about, uh, you know, we truly believe that the Mass makes present Jesus, but not just Jesus, his sacrifice, which means when we go into church, we attend Mass, we kneel down before that altar, we are kneeling next to the Blessed Mother, St. John Mary Magdalene, we are there. Jesus is looking out at us through that host from the cross, and Jesus his heart is just overflowing with love for us saying, I love you so much. This is what I do for you. I die for you. And so it's good that we know this so that our hearts can be in the right place to receive him properly, to worship him properly. And it shouldn't matter to us that we don't like the paint on the walls or the carpet or the priest or the people next to us or whatever because it's the same Jesus being offered for us. He has been offered 
that sacrifice is made present for us at the Mass. And when you think about it, what else matters? This is the reason we were made. This is the reason Jesus came to earth. It is the greatest act of love ever. If you want to learn about love to have better relationships and a better family and more happiness in your life, that's where you're going to find it in the Mass and meditating on what the Mass truly is and entering into it as deeply as possible. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We will talk about this more in upcoming sermons, but I hope everybody has a great day. And I pray for all of you that you may encounter Jesus more and more deeply in the sacrifice of the Mass. God bless.